Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you living legends. It's time for your Friday tales, and today I have for you three folk stories. The Lord of Death from India, the Mallet from Japan, and the Weird of the Three Arrows from Scotland. And I want to see if you understood the ending of that particular story. Who's got the smarts of my listeners, hmm? Reply in the comments or email me directly at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. Now, turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and make yourself a cup of Earl Grey. And let's listen to three classic folk stories. Enjoy. The Lord of Death Once upon a time there was a road, and everyone who travelled along it died. Some folks said they were killed by a snake, others said by a scorpion, but certain it is, they all died. Now a very old man was travelling along the road, and being tired, sat down on a stone to rest, when suddenly, close beside him, he saw a scorpion as big as a rooster, which, while he looked at it, changed into a horrible snake. He was wonderstruck, and as the creature glided away, he determined to follow it at a little distance and so find out what it really was. So the snake sped on day and night, and behind it followed the old man like a shadow. Once it went into an inn and killed several travellers. Another time it slid into the king's house and killed him. Then it crept up the water spout to the queen's palace and killed the king's youngest daughter. So it passed on, and wherever it went, the sound of weeping and wailing arose and the old man followed it, silent as a shadow. Suddenly the road became a broad, deep, swift river, on the banks of which sat some poor travellers, who longed to cross over but had no money to pay the ferry. Then the snake changed into a handsome buffalo, with a brass necklace and bells around its neck, and stood by the brink of the stream. When the poor travellers saw this, they said, This beast is going to swim to its home across the river. Let us get on its back and hold on to its tail, so that we too shall get over the stream. Then they climbed on its back and held by its tail, and the buffalo swam away with them bravely. But when it reached the middle, it began to kick, until they tumbled off or let go and were all drowned. When the old man, who had crossed the river in a boat, reached the other side, the buffalo had disappeared, and in its stead stood a beautiful ox. Seeing this handsome creature wandering about, a peasant, struck with covetousness, lured it to his home. It was very gentle, suffering itself to be tied up with the other cattle, but in the dead of night it changed into a snake bit all the flocks and herds, and then, creeping into the house, killed all the sleeping folk and crept away. But behind it the old man still followed, as silent 
as a shadow. Presently they came to another river, where the snake changed itself into the likeness of a beautiful young girl, fair to see and covered with costly jewels. After a while, two brothers, soldiers, came by, and as they approached the girl, she began to weep bitterly. What is the matter? asked the brothers. And why do you, so young and beautiful, sit by the river alone? Then a snake girl answered, My husband was even now taking me home, and going down to the stream to look for the ferry boat, fell to washing his face when he slipped in and was drowned. So I have neither husband nor relations. Do not fear, cried the elder of the two brothers, who had become enamoured of her beauty. Come with me, and I will marry you. On one condition, answered the girl. You must never ask me to do any household work, and no matter for what I ask, you must give it to me. I will obey you like a slave, promised the young man. Then go at once to the well and fetch me a cup of water. Your brother can stay with me, quoth the girl. But when the elder brother had gone, the snake girl turned to the younger, saying, Fly with me, for I love you. My promise to your brother was a trick to get him away. Not so, returned the young man. You are his promised wife, and I look on you as my sister. On this the girl became angry, weeping and wailing, until the elder brother returned when she called out, Oh, husband, what a villain is here. Your brother asked me to fly with him and leave you. Then bitter wrath at this treachery arose in the elder brother's heart, so that he drew his sword and challenged the younger to battle. Then they fought all day long, until by evening they both lay dead upon the field. And then the girl took the form of a snake once more, and behind it followed the old man silent as a shadow. But at last it changed into the likeness of an old white-bearded man. And when he who had followed so long saw one like himself, he took courage, and laying hold of the white beard, asked, Who and what are you? Then the old man smiled and answered, Some call me the Lord of Death, because I go about bringing death to the world. Give me death, pleaded the other, for I have followed you far, silent as a shadow, and I am weary. But the Lord of Death shook his head, saying, Not so. I only give to those whose years are full, and you have sixty years of life to come. Then the old white-bearded man vanished. But whether he really was the Lord of Death, or a devil, who can tell? The Mallet there were once two farmer men who were brothers. Both of them worked hard in seed time and in harvest time. They stood knee deep in water to plant out the young rice, bending their backs a thousand times an hour. They wielded the sickle when the hot sun shone, when the rain poured down in torrents. There they were, still at their digging or such like, huddled up in their rice straw raincoats, for in the sweat of their brows did they eat their bread. The elder of the two brothers were called Cho, 
for all he laboured so hard, he was passing rich. From a boy, he had had a saving way with him, and had put by a mint of money. He had a big farm too, and not a year but that he did well, what with his rice and his silkworms and his granaries and storehouses. But there was nothing to show for all this, if it were to be believed. He was a mean, sour man, with not so much as a good day and a cup of tea for a wayfarer, or a cake of cold rice for a beggar man. His children whimpered when he came near them, and his wife was much to be pitied. The younger of the two brothers was called Kane. For all he laboured so hard, he was as poor as a church mouse. Bad was his luck. His silkworms died, and his rice would not flourish. In spite of this, he was a merry fellow, a bachelor who loved a song and an honest cup of sake. His roof, his pipe, his meagre supper, all these he would share very gladly with the first comer. He had the nimblest tongue for a comical joke and the kindest heart in the world. But it is a true thing, though it is a pity all the same, that a man cannot live on love and laughter, and presently Kane was in a bad way. There's nothing for it, he says, but to pocket my pride, for he had some, and go and see what my brother Cho will do for me, and I'm greatly mistaken if it will be much. So he borrows some clothes from a friend for the visit, and sets off in very neat hakama, looking quite the gentleman, and singing a song to keep his heart up. He sees his brother standing outside his house, and the first minute he thinks he is seeing a bogart. Cho is in such ragged gear. But presently he sings out, You're early, Cho. You're early, Kane, says Cho. May I come in and talk a bit? asks Kane. Yes, says Cho. You can, but you won't find anything to eat at this time of day, nor yet to drink, so let disappointments be avoided. Very well says Kane. As it happens, it's not food I've come for. When they were inside the house and sitting on the mats, Cho says, That's a fine suit of clothes you've got on you, Kane. You must be doing well. It's not me that can afford to go out about the muddy rose dressed up like a prince. Times are bad, very bad. In spite of this not being a good beginning, Kane plucks up his courage and laughs, and presently he says, <laughs> Look here, brother. These are borrowed clothes. My own will hardly hold together. My rice crop was ruined, and my silkworms are dead. I have not a rin to buy rice seed or new worms. I am at my wit's end, and I have come to you begging. So now you have it. For the sake of the mother that bore us both, give me a handful of seed and a few silkworm eggs. At this, Cho made as if he would faint with astonishment and dismay. Alack, alack, he says. I am a poor man, a very poor man. Must I rob my wife and my miserable children? And thus, he bewailed himself and talked for half an hour. But to make a long story short, Cho says that out of filial piety, and because of the blessed mother of them both, he must make shift to give Kane the silkworm's eggs and the rice. 
So he gets a handful of dead eggs and a handful of musty and mouldy rice. These are no good to man or beast, says the old fox to himself, and he laughs. But to his own blood brother he says, Here, Kane, is the best silkworm eggs I'm giving you, and the best rice of all my poor store, and I cannot afford it at all, and may the gods forgive me for robbing my poor wife and my children. Kane thanks his brother with all his heart for his great generosity and bows his head to the match three times. Then off he goes, with the silkworm eggs and the rice in his sleeve, skipping and jumping with joy, for he thought that his luck had turned at last. But in the muddy part of the road, he was careful to hold up his hakama, for they were borrowed. When he reached home, he gathered a great store of green mulberry leaves. This was for the silkworms that were going to be hatched out of the dead eggs, and he sat down and waited for the silkworms to come. And come they did, too. And that was very strange, because the eggs were dead eggs for sure. The silkworms were a lively lot. They ate the mulberry leaves in a twinkling and lost no time at all, but began to wind themselves into cocoons that minute. Then Kanne was the happy man. He went out and told his good fortune to all the neighbours. This was where he made his mistake and he found a peddler man who did his round in those parts and gave him a message to take to his brother Cho, with his compliments and respectful thanks, that the silkworms were doing uncommonly well. This was where he made a bigger mistake. It was a pity he could not let well be alone. When Cho heard of his brother's luck, he was not pleased. Pretty soon he tied on his straw sandals and was off to Kanne's farm. Kanne was out when he got there, but Cho did not care for that. He went to have a look at the silkworms, and when he saw how they were beginning to spin themselves into cocoons as neat as you please, he took a sharp knife and cut every one of them into two. Then he went away, home, the bad man. When Kanye came to look after his silkworms, he could not help thinking they look a bit queer. He scratches his head and he says, It almost appears as though each of them has been cut in half. They seem dead, he says. Then out he goes and gathers a great lot of mulberry leaves, and all those half silkworms set to, and ate up the mulberry leaves. And after that, there was just twice as many silkworms spinning away as there were before. And that was very strange, because the silkworms were dead, for sure. When Cho heard of this, he goes and chops his own silkworms in two with a sharp knife, but he gained nothing by that, for the silkworms never moved again, but stayed as dead as dead, and his wife had to throw them away next morning. After this, Kane sowed the rice seed that he had from his brother, and when the young rice came up as green as you please, he planted it out with care, and it flourished wonderfully. And soon the rice was formed in the ear. One day, an immense flight of swallows came and settled on Kane's rice field. Ara, ara! Kane shouted. He clapped his hands and beat about with a bamboo stick. So the swallows flew away. In two minutes, back they came. Ara, ara! Kane shouted. He clapped his hands and beat, and the swallows flew away again, and in two minutes came back again. When he had scared them away for the ninth time, Kane takes his tengu and wipes his face. This grows into a habit, he says. But in two minutes back, 
came the swallows for the tenth time. Hurrah! Hurrah! Come, they shouted, and he chased them over hill and dale, hedge and ditch, rice field and mulberry field, till at last they flew away from his sight, and he found himself in a mossy dell, shaded by spreading pine trees. Being very tired with running, he lies down his full length upon the moss, and presently falls fast asleep and snoring. The next thing was that he dreamed. He thought he saw a troop of children come to the mossy glade, for in his dream he remembered very well where he was. The children fluttered here and there among the pine tree trunks. They were as pretty as flowers or butterflies. One and all of them had dancing bare feet. Their hair hung down, long, loose, and black. Their skins were white like the plum blossom. For good or for evil, says Kane to himself, I have seen the fairy's children. The children made an end of their dancing and sat them upon the ground in a ring. Leader, leader, they cried. Fetch us the mallet. Then they rose up a beautiful boy, about fourteen or fifteen years old, the eldest and the tallest there. He lifted a mossy stone quite close to Kane's head. Underneath was a plain little mallet of white wood. The boy took it up and went and stood within the circle of children. He laughed and cried, Now what will you have? A kite, a kite, calls out one of the children. The boy shakes the mallet and lo and behold, he shakes a kite out of it. A great kite with a tail to it and a good ball of twine as well. Now, what else? asks the boy. Battledore and shuttlecock for me, says a little girl. And sure enough, there they are. A battledore of the best and twenty shuttlecocks, meatly feathered and gilded. Now, what else? says the boy. A lot of sweets. Greedy, says the boy. But he shakes them out and there are the sweets. A red crepe frock and a brocade obby. Miss Vanity, says the boy. But he shakes all this gravely out of the mallet. Books, story books. That's better, says the boy. And out comes the books by the dozen and a score, all upon to show the lovely pictures. Now, when the children had their heart's desires, the leader put away the mallet beneath its mossy stone, and after they had played for some time, they became tired. Their bright attires melted away into the gloom of the wood, and their pretty voices grew distant, and then were heard no more. It was very still. Kanne awoke, and found the sunset and darkness beginning to fall. There was the mossy stone right under his hand. He lifted it, and there was the mallet. Now, said Kanne, taking it up, Begging the pardon of the fairy's children, I'll make bold to borrow that mallet. So he took it home in his sleeve and spent a pleasant evening shaking gold pieces out of it, and sake, and new clothes, and farmer's tools, and musical instruments, and who knows what all. It is not hard to believe that pretty soon he became the richest and jolliest farmer in all that countryside. Sleek and fat he grew, and his heart was bigger and kinder than ever. But what like was Cho's heart when he got wind of all this? Aye, there's the question. Cho turned green with envy, as green as grass.
I'll have a fairy mallet too, he says, and be rich for nothing. Why should that idiot spendthrift Kanne have all the good fortune? So he goes and begs rice from his brother, which his brother gives him very willingly, a good sackful, and he waits for it to ripen, quite wild with impatience. It ripens sure enough, and sure enough a flight of swallows comes and settles upon the good grain in the ear. Ara ara! shouted Cho, clapping his hands and laughing aloud for joy. The swallows flew away and Cho was after them. He chased them over hill and dale, hedge and ditch, rice field and mulberry field, till at last they flew away from his sight and he found himself in a mossy dell, shaded by spreading pine trees. Cho looks about him. This should be the place, says he. So he lies down and waits for with one wily eye shut and one wily eye open. Presently, who should trip into the dell but the fairy's children? Very fresh they were as they moved among the pine tree trunks. Leader, leader, fetch us the mallet, they cried. Up stepped the leader and lifted away the mossy stone. And behold, there was no mallet there. Now the fairy's children became very angry. They stamped their little feet and cried and rushed wildly to and fro and were beside themselves altogether because the mallet was gone. See, cried the leader at last. See this ugly old farmer man. He must have taken our mallet. Let us pull his nose for him. With a shrill scream, the fairy's children set upon Cho. They pinched him and pulled him and buffeted him and set their sharp teeth in his flesh till he yelled in agony. Worst of all, they laid hold of his nose and pulled it. Long it grew and longer. It reached his waist. It reached his feet. Lord, how they laughed. The fairy's children and then they scampered away like fallen leaves before the wind. Cho sighed, and he groaned, and he cursed, and he swore. But for all that, his nose was not an inch shorter. So sad and sorry, he gathered it up in his two hands and went to Kane's house. Kane, I am very sick, says he. Indeed, so I see, says Kane. A terrible sickness. And how did you catch it? He says, and so kind he was that he never laughed at Cho's nose, nor yet he never smiled, but there was tears in his eyes at his brother's misfortunes. Then Cho's heart melted, and he told his brother all the tale, and he never kept back how mean he had been about the dead silkworm eggs, and about the other things that had been told of, and he asked Kanne to forgive him and help him. Wait you still a minute says Kanne. He goes to his chest, and he brings out the mallet, and he rubs it very gently up and down Cho's long nose, and sure enough it shortened up very quickly. In two minutes it was a natural size. Cho danced for joy. Kanne looks at him and says, If I were you, I'd just go home and try to be different. When Cho had gone, Kanne sat still and thought for a long time. When the moon rose that night, he went out and took the mallet with him. He came to the mossy dell that was shaded with spreading pine trees, and he laid the mallet in this old place under the stone. I'm the last man in the world, he said, to be unfriendly to the fairy's children. And he left the mallet there. The Weird of the Three Arrows Sir James Douglas, the companion of Bruce and well-known by his appellation of the Black Douglas, 
was once, during the hottest period of the exterminating war carried on by him and his colleague Randolph against the English stationed at Linthorgli, near Jedburgh. He was resting himself and his men after the toils of many days' fighting marches through Tevetdale, and according to his custom, had walked around the tents previously to retire to the uniquest rest of a soldier's bed. He stood for a few minutes at the entrance to his tent, contemplating the scene before him, rendered more interesting by a clear moon whose silver beams fell in the silence of a night without a breath of wind, calmly on the slumbers of mortals destined to mix in the melee of dreadful war, perhaps on the morrow. As he stood gazing, irresolute whether to retire to rest or indulge longer in a train of thought not very suitable to a warrior who delighted in the spirit-stirring scenes of his profession, his eye was affected by the figure of an old woman who approached him with a trembling step, leaning on a staff and holding her left hand three English cloth-shaft arrows. You are he who has hired the guide, Sir James, said the old woman. I am, good woman, replied Sir James. Why hast thou wanted from the sutler's camp? I didn't belong to the camp of the hoblins, answered the woman. I have been a resident in Lithorgli since the day when King Alexander passed the door of my cottage with his bonny French bride. While I was terrified of our fray, Jedburgh by the death's head, will appear to her on the day of her marriage. What I have suffered sin that day, looking at the arrows in her hand, lies between me and heaven. Some of your sons have been killed in the wars, I presume, said Sir James. Ye hey guessed a part of my ways, replied the woman. That arrow, holding out one of the three, carries on its point the build of my firstborn. That is stained with the stream that poured fray the heart of my second. And that is red to wit the gore in which my youngest weltered, as he gave up the life that made me childless. They were a shot by English hands, in different armies, in different battles. I am an honest woman, and wish to return to the English what belongs to the English, but that in the same fashion in which they were sent. The Black Douglas has the strongest arm and the surest E in old Scotland, and why can execute my commission? Better than he. I do not use the bow, good woman, replied Sir James. I love the grasp of the dagger or the battle axe. You must apply to some other individual to return your arrows. I cannot talk them home again, said the woman, laying them down at the feet of Sir James. You'll see me again on Sir James Ian. The old woman departed as she said these words. Sir James took up the arrows and placed them in an empty quiver that lay amongst his baggage. He retired to rest, but not to sleep. The figure of the old woman and her strange request occupied his thoughts, and produced trains of meditation which ended in nothing but restlessness and disquietude. Getting up at daybreak, he met the messenger at the entrance of his tent, who informed him that Sir Thomas de Richmond, with a force of 10,000 men, had crossed the borders and would pass through a narrow defile, which he mentioned, where he could be attacked with great advantage, Sir James gave instant orders to march to the post, and, with that genius for scheming, for which he was so remarkable, commanded his men to twist together the young birch trees on either side of the passage to prevent the escape of the enemy. This finished, 
he concealed his archers in a hollow away, near the gorge of the pass. The enemy came on, and when their ranks were embarrassed by the narrowness of the road, and it was impossible for the cavalry to act with effect, Sir James rushed upon them at the head of his horsemen, and the archers suddenly, discovering themselves, poured in a flight of arrows on the confused soldiers and put the whole army to flight. In the heat of the onset, Douglas killed Sir Thomas de Richmond with his dagger. Not long after this, Edmund de Calon, a knight of Gascony and governor of Berwick, who had been heard to vaunt that he had sought the famous Black Knight, he could not find him, was returning to England, loaded with plunder, the fruit of an inroad on Teverdale. Sir James thought it a pity that a Gascon's vaunt should be heard unpunished in Scotland, and made long forced marches to satisfy the desire of the foreign knight. By giving him a sight of the dark countenance, he had made a subject of reproach. He soon succeeded in gratifying both himself and the Gascon. Coming up in his terrible manner, he called to Callion to stop, and before he proceeded into England, received the respects of the Black Knight he had come to find, but hitherto had not met. The Gascon's vaunt was now changed, but shame supplied the place of courage, and he ordered his men to receive Douglas's attack. Sir James assiduously sought his enemy. He at last succeeded, and a single combat ensued of a most desperate character. But whoever escaped the arm of Douglas when fairly opposed to him in single conflict, Callion was killed. He had met the Black Knight at last. So much, cried Sir James, for the vaunt of Gascon. Similar in every respect to the fate of Callion was that of Sir Ralph Neville. He, too, on hearing the great fame of Douglas's prowess from some of Gallon's fugitive soldiers, openly boasted that he would fight with the Scottish knight if he would come and show his banner before Berwick. Sir James heard the boast and rejoiced in it. He marched to that town and caused his men to ravage the country in front of the battlements and burn the villages. Neville left Berwick with a strong body of men and, stationing himself on a high ground, waited till the rest of the Scots should disperse to plunder. But Douglas called in his detachment and attacked the knight. After a desperate conflict, in which many were slain, Douglas, as was his custom, succeeded in bringing the leader to a personal encounter, and the skill of the Scottish knight was again successful. Neville was slain, and his men utterly discomfited. Having retired one night to his tent to take some rest, after so much pain and toil, Sir Douglas was surprised by the reappearance of the old woman who he had seen at Linthorgli. This is the feast, O St. James, she said as she approached him. I said I would see ye again this nicht, and I misguids my word. Hi, ye returned the arrows I left wi' ye to the English, while I sent them to the hearts of my sons. No, replied Sir James. I told ye. I did not fight with the bow. Wherefore do ye importune me thus? Give me back the arrows, then, said the woman. Sir James went to bring the quiver in which he had placed them. On taking them out, he was surprised to find that they were all broken through the middle. How has this happened? said he. I put these arrows in this quiver entire, and now they are broken? The weird is fulfilled, cried the old woman, laughing eldritchly and clapping her hands. That broken shaft can fray a soldier or Richmond's, that fray any O'Callions, and that fray any O'Neville's. 
they are dead, and I am revenged. The old woman then departed, scattering, as she went, the broken fragment of the arrows on the floor. The old woman then departed, scattering as she went, the broken fragment of the arrows on the floor of the tent. Well, I hope you enjoyed all three folk stories. We got a shapeshift in Deathbringer, a mallet of wishing, and a set of three arrows with prophetic levels of witchery. Thoroughly enjoyed these, and I hope you did too, mates. If you want to support this podcast so it can continue to do what it does, you can be like my latest supporter, Catherine Mason, who has supported the podcast for an entire year at the cost of a cup of tea a month. It's as simple as that and the support flies straight into production, really. The new music and sound effects that you're hearing in the previous episode and future episodes are all thanks to supporters like Catherine. You can visit my Patreon page for more information by googling Patreon SFGT or entering the URL www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT and that's another way to find me. If you have any requests, stories of your own, send them to my email storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. Don't be shy, and you'll always receive a response from me. Always. Now it's time to thank my supporters. <laughs> First up is my Ode Night Tea Titan, Maya the Magnificent, the Queen of Cats, the one who grabs this podcast by the pants and launches it into the catosphere. Maya, thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Subscription costs came in as usual, and thanks to you, bam, it's covered. I'm very lucky to have your support, and not a single episode goes up without your support playing a role in its production. And I'm eternally grateful. Thank you, you legend. My white tea warlord, Leza the Bawazuka. Mate, I hope you're doing fantastically, and I just want to say thank you immensely for your support. You help this show punch up when it comes to special effects and new music because of you, Leza. I have been able to buy a bundle of new audio that I would otherwise not have access to. Thank you, mate. You're bloody awesome. And my second white tea warlord, Paige the Crystal Queen. Thank you, Paige, for not only your lovely communications, your knowledge, but also your support. With your support funding my recent pop filter, I've been really working that thing to the bone. It's so strong and so sturdy. It's in fact the best pop filter I've ever owned. Only possible because of supporters like you that decided to give this podcast a chance and donate. Thank you immensely. And my epic Earl Grey Enforcers, the people that are kind enough to send love my way every month, I'm lucky to have. Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, and Leah Fassig. Thank you all and have a brilliant weekend and never ever ever forget how brilliant you all are. And for my new listeners as well, thank you for taking the time to listen. Have a wonderfully wicked weekend, and as always, mates, till next we meet.